This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. Greetings and salutations, everybody. This is your trusty co-host, Stephen Julian, with you uh, for Phelan and Myers, two for 20, seated to my right, the better than incomparable Scott Phelan. Yes, sir. Yeah. I like how you just seized that. You agreed with it right away. Uh, Scott, we have a uh, repeat guest today, and uh, we've got uh, uh, tall tales. We're going to spin some yarn. We're going to have a fantastic time telling stories, but not you or me, because people would turn that out. You you got a great guest. Go ahead and introduce him. Yes. So we've got Bill Bruton with us again this month. So he did the uh, uh, podcast last month, The Basics of Fraud Protection, but he's got such a fascinating story. And frankly, this this story doesn't have a whole lot to do with money or managing money or anything like that, um, but it's such an interesting story that I thought clients might have an interest in hearing it. So why don't we start out, Bill, do you mind giving us your background one more time just for the folks that didn't listen to last month's podcast? Well, first they should stop and go listen to that podcast and then come back, Well, and, but they could still hear it again. I was with the IRS Criminal Division, Criminal Investigation Division for a little over 25 years. I came into Atlanta in 1988 as a supervisor, and I supervised a group of agents who did half of their work was with DEA and FBI uh, investigating illegal income, and the other half investigating legal income as it relates to uh, income tax evasion or filing false tax returns. When we first started working with uh, DEA in Atlanta, I was working with an agent uh, whose name was Skip Latson. He was a uh, premier DEA agent, and his specialty was in uh, following the money in drug trafficking. So he and I almost partnered up, and I would take the money side of the DEA uh, cocaine operations, and he would take the drug side and the informant side. We first started our major investigation, which uh, was an investigation uh, starting in Atlanta, but then it also uh, joined up with investigations in New York, California, Texas, and Florida. And the investigation started when a box box was being handled by UPS or some other freight company. And as they were loading it on the plane, they dropped the box. And the box opened up and there was nothing but money inside the box. And I think there was like maybe a hundred or $200,000 in currency in the box. So they contacted FBI, FBI contacted DEA and determined that It was going from New York to a gold company in California. Well, that started a huge international investigation of the import-export of money uh, through cocaine trafficking, and it happened to be Pablo Escobar's uh, organization. During that investigation, we started looking at a bank in Panama, and we had uh, DEA did some undercover operations there and determined that that bank was assisting the gold traders in California and laundering the money back to Pablo Escobar. The bottom line of that particular investigation, we ended up seizing the bank in Panama and seizing all of their accounts. And what we found that the money was going in, but the money was going out to pay for somebody's utility bills in the United States, someone's uh, tuition, et cetera. We couldn't find out how the money came from drug trafficking to the Bank of Panama to paying all these bills. So someone suggested, they, in fact, they got an informant out of Quito, Ecuador, 
and the informant says, if you had a bank, you could find out how all this money came. And so Skip and I looked at each other and says, well, yeah, we, we can do a bank. And we ended up uh, getting permission uh, to do a bank, which it took us almost 18 months to get through the bureaucracy of the United States and in London to getting the bank established. Now, what was the name of the bank? The name of the bank was RHM Trust Company of Anguilla. You are in this investigation. You're opening up a fake bank to start to see how money is flowing. Can you give a quick little education for uh, for people about why it's necessary to, in essence, launder the money and, and kind of how that process is done? Most people don't realize how heavy large amounts of money are. For example, we'd pick up $400,000 in currency. And $400,000 in ones, fives, tens, and twenties, if they were equal amount of money, $10,000 or $100,000 each, it would be 135 bills and would weigh approximately 50, uh, would weigh 298 pounds. $400,000 weighs 298 pounds. Yes, 298 pounds. If we do 50 pounds in each suitcase or each box, it's six boxes or six suitcases. Now, you can imagine uh, we have drug trafficker who would have $400,000 a day. So all of a sudden, he's got so much money piled up that it's just almost impossible for him to handle it. The only institution in the world that's capable of converting that amount of weight to an electronic blip, which weighs almost nothing, are banks and financial institutions. We would, for example, we're following the money. We see it being delivered to a particular house and the police would knock on that house or we would knock on that house and we'd say we suspect there are drugs in the house and the person there from an ethnic background uh, from south america would say no there's nothing in this house he said well do you mind if we search well yeah come on in and search and we'd say what's in that room and they'd say well we don't know what's in that room we've never been in that room (laughs) and so well can we go in that room Yes, you could go in that room. We open the room, and there are 10 or 15 boxes in there. And we'd say, what's in those boxes? Well, we don't know what's in those boxes. We've never opened those boxes. Well, do you mind if we take the boxes then? Well, no, go ahead and take the boxes. But could you give us a receipt just in case somebody comes back and wants to know what those boxes were? And we'd end up taking the money, and there, there could be 800000 or a $1 million in those boxes. But because those people had said, we've never been in that room, you can't. You, you can't charge them or hold them or anything like that. We chose not to charge them because right. we wanted to follow them to see where they were going. But we could seize the money because we knew that it was drug trafficking because we had possibly delivered money one time there. So we knew what the source of the money was. Now, our problem ran into is when you have all this money and it goes into a bank, especially a foreign bank, what happens to the money? If it goes to South America and you send them $400,000, what did they do with the money? And that's where we ran into a problem in what was called the black market peso exchange system, where the cocaine would come into the United States, would be converted to cash, the cash would stay in the United States, but it would be sold and or traded in Colombia for pesos. And so we wouldn't be able to see the, uh, the conversion. And what was happening in some cases where the cash in the United States, where the drug trafficker would take it, let's say, and, and, and buy tractor parts. And then the tractor parts would then be shipped to South America, and then the drug trafficker would sell the, traffic, the, the tractor parts, and that's how he got his money. 
and that's why it was called the black market peso exchange system. The only way we were able to find out how it happened was by starting our own bank. So let's go back to so so you start the bank, 18-month process of getting it open. How long did it take before you started to be involved or get approached or kind of talk through you start this bank and how do you guys start getting involved and start doing things you weren't able to do before? Well, the first thing we did was we we had an informant in South America and he would arrange for money pickups, let's say, for example, in Atlanta. So we would pick the money up in Atlanta and with the owner of the money or the person who was asking us to pick the money up, we would tell them, well, listen, we got a friendly banker. Why don't we just deposit the money into this bank and then we'll send you a cashier's check or we'll have a wire transfer to your bank account and wherever, or we'll pay your bills. After a while, it just got, I, I think within 30 days, we had uh, 10 customers for the bank and we were laundering a million dollars at a time uh, very easily and uh, they were very grateful for it and of course they paid anywhere from two to ten percent to us for that privilege and and this in what you probably also figured out very quickly is what you were doing was not uncommon that other banks were doing the same thing right in other words it was it wasn't like oh we've never heard of this before this is what they were used to in the early stages of money laundering monies would be uh, 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 accumulated in florida and they would then go into florida banks the banks would open up at seven o'clock in the morning for them they would have conference rooms with money counting machines and it was just normal course of business Tr a truck would pull up to their back door unload all the money they count it then when the government realized what was happening they instituted a uh, currency transaction report requirement form which required every bank, if they received $10,000 or more in cash, they had to fill out the form. So that stopped the backroom operations of banks. But the traffickers, being ingenious as they are, what they would do then is they would have a carload full of five people, for example, have uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars in the trunk of a car. They'd start on I-75 in Miami, start going to every interchange for every branch bank and go in and get cashier's checks and they get cashier's checks for $9,500 under the $10,000 rule until they made it all the way up to, let's say, Kentucky, ran out of money, went back and gave somebody the cashier's checks. Then the government saw what they were doing there. Then they instituted a suspicious activity report. Well, then they moved to doing business with businesses, buying cars, et cetera. Then the government came in with a 8300 form, which says anybody in a trader business was required to fill out this form. Well, now the, they've got them boxed in. Now they need a bank, and that's where we came in. But the bank was not easy to establish because the bank wanted to be offshore in Anguilla, and it was what it called a uh, paper bank, which really wasn't there. It was just a nameplate on the, on the side of a building. It was a Class B bank, but it was operated in Anguilla. If we were to go to Anguilla undercover, then we'd be acting as spies in that country. So we had to get the British government to authorize us to be there and participate in the investigation. So we were really acting with or for or on behalf of the British government. But then after we got kind of an outline of how to do it, then we had to go to the Attorney General of the United States through DEA to get approval to do a bank because we knew at that time we were going to be doing illegal operations. And we had to get the Attorney General to approve to give us what is called an exemption from the illegal activity. 
But the bank was so complicated, we wanted to make sure that we were all backstopped, et cetera. So if you think in simple terms of the simple thing, for example, the size of the paper that they use offshore is different. They use a metric system. So it's a little narrower and a little longer. The ink that they use had to be manufactured in Europe so that if they did an ink test, and then we, after we wrote it all up, we knew we were going to have uh, English, Spanish, and French. Well, we wanted to use British English, we wanted to use Parisian French, and we wanted to use Madrid Spanish. So we literally sent the, the English translation to those embassies. They hired an, uh, a native speaker and translated it and put it together. Wow. We, uh, we're speaking with uh, Bill Bruton, uh, former IRS criminal investigator, uh, working with the DEA uh, in a long-term case dating back to the late 80s, uh, where they actually opened up a bank and, and uh, participated uh, in following the money and, and uh, learning a lot more about money laundering. What were some of the dangers uh, you guys faced, um, apart from... Uh, literally telling the story of vans backing up and opening their doors and throwing money in the bank. Uh, what were some of the dangers you guys faced in the, in the midst of this? Well, the, some of the dangers were we also were doing international uh, operations. For example, we picked up money uh, from a mafia organization in Sicily, and we found out that they were uh, buying arms and shipping the arms to uh, Bosnia during the war. Uh, in contravention of the uh, embargo. So we were able to follow the money, provide information to the UN and to the uh, Coast Guard, and they stopped the ship and seized the money. We also were dealing with uh, the terrorist group in, in South America, FARC, who would uh, provide uh, cocaine protection for the uh, cartels. Uh, we found out through some of the investigations that they were dealing with ETA in Spain. So we had to go to Spain talk to the uh, Spanish police uh, about ETA and what they were doing, and that uh, we wanted to pick up money from ETA and ship it back to the United States. So did the bank have regular customers? I mean, was it a legitimate bank, or was it just a bank for the, you know, quote-unquote bad guys? That was one of the requirements. There were two major requirements from the uh, Attorney General and the Secretary of Treasury. One, we could not be open to the public and we could not be dealing with legitimate customers. So we had to have bona fides that the customer that was being referred to us receiving only illegal income. So basically they had to be drug traffickers. They had to be receiving money from drug trafficking. The other requirement they had, we could not put in jeopardy another bank and uh, cause it, because we, for example, that we were dealing with Wachovia Bank, we had a $10 million line of credit with them and in fact, if you went on to the, their website and if you could access their, our bank account, it would show that we had $10 million in the bank. Didn't have the money there, but it looked like we did. But we would also, the Treasury is so concerned that we were inside the wire transfer system as an insider trader that we could bankrupt or they were concerned that we could cause a, another bank some major problems. What, uh, what were some of the, the victories? What were some of the things you were able to... A, a part, so this all starts with a box opening up and, and money spilling out. Kind of go to the end of the story or go at various markers in the story. What were you guys able to go? We were able to do this. We were able to stop this. We were able to talk through some of the victories. One thing that we found, uh, they were importing what they thought was gold from Ecuador. 
And so the gold would come into Miami and would be put in bricks, and then they would receive a, a receipt from customs saying they sold the, the, the gold when they took the money out. What we realized after the fact, which customs didn't know, that the bricks were actually lead and just gold leaf on top of it because Ecuador had no gold mines. In fact, at one time, Ecuador was rated as the third largest importer of gold into the United States, and they had no gold mines. They had lead mines. The same thing with emeralds. We had a guy come in with emerald. He declared to customs a million dollars worth of emeralds, and he, I said, well, what word? What was in the bag? He said, emerald chips. But customs never asked for an appraisal of it. And I said, well, what did you do with the emerald chips? Oh, we just threw them out the window because they were worthless to us. But we had a customs document, a document that said we brought in a million dollars so we could take a million dollars out. We also were able to assist the Spanish government in their investigation of, of ETA and the money laundering. We assisted the Colombian government in, in uh, what FARC was doing. Uh, we also, probably one of the more dangerous things was the investigation we had in Colombia. Skip and I came across an investigation in Colombia of a high-ranking Colombian official. So they sent a, tenet, uh, a secret teletype to the uh, ambassador in Colombia, and he invited us down there. We arrived at the airport, and we see the people on the other side of customs there for us. And the guy said, Bill Bruton, Skip Latson, and there were a couple other people with us, so we got in two white Suburbans. If you remember, there was a famous movie where uh, somebody arrived at the Colombian air airport with three white Suburbans, and they ran through the city, were blown up. Well, we had two white Suburbans. We were in the first one, and the protection detail was in the second one. So we get to the hotel, and it's a garden-type hotel which I think was eight floors tall, but the center of the hotel was open. So you walk into the lobby, you could see straight up all the floors, and you're in the center. When we walk in, we all looked at the third floor. There are no lights on the third floor. The rest of the hallways were all lit up, but not on the third floor. So we go to the check-in counter, and the security guard says, these are the folks that we talked to you about. We're not going to register them or what room they're in, but, but here's there. So the clerk flips on the lights, goes to the third floor. We look up on the third floor, and there are guards, armed guards, all over the third floor. We go up to the third floor. We go to our rooms, and one, I get a phone call saying, Bill, look out the door. Don't open the door, but look out the door. The lights are turned off. So the next morning at breakfast, we're met with the uh, embassy security folks, and we, I asked him, I said, why were the lights turned off? He said, oh, he said, very simple. He says, if the terrorists attacked that hotel, they wouldn't be able to see the guards that were on the third floor hallways. So the guards would be able to shoot them if anything happened. If they did get to the third floor, they wouldn't know what room you're in. And that by the time they got to the third floor, the Marine Battalion or the Marine group at the embassy would be at the hotel. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, okay, that makes us feel real good. <laughs> so the next day we're at the, ho at the embassy, and we go to their most secret room. It's the room inside a room. And the walls, there are two walls, the outside wall and the inside wall, and there's a, uh, a, a cavity in between so sound can't penetrate. And inside the room were all the three lettered agencies that were there, and we explained to the ambassador why we were there, the political figure we were investigating or had leads to. And so at the end of the meeting, he turns to the security folks. He says, I want these two out of the country. The first available flight tomorrow morning, it's too dangerous for them to be here.
And so we left the country. Uh, about a month or two later, uh, we found out that uh, some of the people in Colombia were threatening the United States Attorney, the Assistant United States Attorney, the uh, District Director of the IRS, and Skip and I. And so uh, the District Director asked me, he says, Bill, what, uh, uh, who's in charge of his security? I says, well, since it's a criminal case, we're in charge of your security. He says, well, if they come after me, what are they going to come after me with? And I said, well, probably shotguns and machine guns, et cetera. And he says, well, what are you going to use to protect yourself? I says, well, we got these revolvers that uh, the, the government has. And he says, is that going to be enough? And I says, I don't think so. He says, so give me a list of everything you think you'll need. Well, anybody who knows me never gives me a, a green card or a, a credit card uh, with unlimited use. So I said, okay, and I thought he was joking. So I said, okay, give me a couple machine guns and a couple shotguns and, and uh, give me a dozen 9 millimeter revolvers. And within three days, I get a call from Secret Service saying they had two Uzis <laughs> that they could have. ATF calls up and says, I got some H&K MP5s for you, and uh, we also have 9 millimeters. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. So my boss comes in to me one day, he says, Bill, he says, what's your authority if you have to use a shotgun? I said, well, I have to write you a letter, then I have to get the permission of the district director to use the shotgun. And he says, what about the machine gun? He said, oh, I don't need your permission to use the machine gun. I can take it home with me. <clears throat> he says, that's what I thought your authorization, <laughs> and he left. And so I ended up on, on many a night with a machine gun under my bed, and I had to tell my kids where it was and don't touch it. Right. <laughs> wow. Wow. Now, uh, now, now, one last thing before we wrap it up here. Now, the you told the same story about the, the Anguillan Bank on NPR, right? Yes, I did. And then you got some phone calls from some movie studios about wanting to, to potentially make it into a movie? Uh, we got three phone calls. 20th Century Fox uh, was the first one, and they were interested in doing a, a major motion picture film on the, on the bank. Uh, we also did a stock brokerage firm, but they wanted to cover that too. Right now, the the two writers that are doing the write-up are from uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime, and they're now, interested in doing a series. And is it true that Brad Pitt's going to play you or George Clooney? George Clooney has asked— uh, George, You look a little more like George Clooney than Brad Pitt, so that would be— it, There's something about <laughs> his wife. I, I just can't—and my wife. I just, you know, it's— <laughs> <laughs> and and you you uh, you threw or you made a very quick comment on top of a bank. There was a there was a fake stock brokerage. When when we finished the the bank, Skip and I looked at each other and says, "Well, what's the next phase to our operation?" I said, "Well, the only other thing left over is we could do a stock brokerage firm." And so we ended up getting permission from the Attorney General, Secretary of Treasury, and the SEC to do a stock brokerage firm. And a, a little inside story about that is uh, we cleared the pass for everything. So now we get, and the SEC says, we want to meet with you to talk about this license you want. So inside the meeting was the head of their criminal division, head of their marketing division, and, and their attorneys. And so the attorney turns to me and he says, well, well, Bill, what kind of license do you want? I says, well, I want a dealer license and I want a dealer broker license. And, and he says, well, geez, those are hard to get. And, and he says, the test is terrible. I says, well, my guy has done listed some stockbroker's transaction on his tax returns, and I'm sure he can talk like a stockbroker. Oh, no, no, no. That, this test you've got to take is terrible. I says, well, why don't you just give me the answers to the test? 
And I mean, he, you think I had just had a mortal sin statement right, in there. Right. He's, oh no, those things are top secret. Can't do that. I says, well, if you can't give me the answers, why don't you give me the questions in advance? Oh, that's even worse than giving you the answers. Can't do that. Well, as a side note, I knew the following week the FBI was going to arrest a bunch of SEC folks for taking tests for people. And so I said, well, gee whiz, you got SEC. And so I, third thing I said, well, you got smart SEC people on your staff. Why don't they take the test for me? Oh, my God, he said, that's even worse than the other two. Don't you understand that there's going to be a major investigation next week on people doing that? I says, well, if you can't give me the answers, can't give me the questions, and you can't take the test for me, why don't you just give me a score? Oh, we can do that. <laughs> oh, we can do that. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you a score. I said, I don't want a high score. Just give me a score. Just give me an average score. <laughs> just a passing score. Just a passing I, score. I love it. So, uh, so George Clooney will be playing you at some – may or may not be playing you at some point uh, in a movie, possibly on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Yes. Uh, Bill Bruton, thank you so much, uh, first of all, for your service, and secondly, for sharing – uh, stories and making uh, money laundering and, and money issues uh, quite entertaining and thankfully uh, very profitable for the good guys. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Bill. Scott, great uh, guest. Thank you, as always, for allowing me to be part of the show. And uh, we will catch you next time on Phelan and Myers, 2 for 20. This is Phelan and Myers, two for 20 with the Phelan and Myers Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130 in Duluth, Georgia. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may, at times, release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janie, please see Janie's Relationship Summary Form, Form CRS, on Janie.com forward slash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest. For a full description of Janie's Investment Advisory Products and Services, please refer to Janie's Form ADV Part 2, available on Janie's website or by contacting a Janie Financial Advisor.